It was a dark and stormy night. Don't all good stories begin that way? I was standing alone on the black tarmac of the Kilimanjaro International Airport. I was an agent of the General Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. My mission was to teach Bible classes to the Seventh-day Adventist students who went to various high schools around the bottom of Mount Kilimanjaro. I was standing in the light rain waiting for my contact. I had been told that they would be there to pick me up. As I was standing there, it ran through my mind, why am I here? What am I doing and where is my contact? To a large degree, I was there because I didn't know what I was doing. I had just turned 21. I had finished my first senior year at Pacific Union College. And I didn't know the answers to the three largest questions that a young man should try to answer. The first one was, what am I going to be when I grow up? I had taken lots of classes, but I still didn't know. Should I become a pastor? Should I become a lawyer? Should I become a physician? I didn't know. I also didn't know with whom I was going to spend the rest of my life. I didn't have seven women on my mind, but there were several who had promised that they would correspond with me while I was in Tanzania. And I wasn't sure what God had in store for me as far as a wife and family went. My third problem had to do with my church and my God. I still had questions about the denomination, about my relationship with God. I wasn't sure if that was the direction I wanted my life to go. And as I stood there in the dark, in the rain, waiting for my contact, it got even darker. They turned off the lights of the runway and closed down the tower of the airport. And I decided my contact was missing. Luckily for me, there was one van still in the parking lot, the van for the new Arusha Hotel in Arusha, Tanzania. And the airport happened to be in the middle of nowhere between Moshi and Arusha, about 25 miles from each of them. And the van driver came over to me and said, I don't think anybody's going to pick you up tonight, and you really are in the middle of nowhere. Why don't you come with me to the new Arusha Hotel? So I did. And I got to the new Arusha Hotel, and it turned out that it was a very nice hotel. It was one of the most luxurious hotels in Tanzania. It had been built in the late 1800s, and it had been kept up. It had a beautiful tropical garden. 
And as I checked into the hotel, I figured I'll be here for a night, then I'll get in contact with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, with the conference here, and everything will be great. Seven days later, I began counting my money and trying to figure out how long I could afford to stay in the new Arusha Hotel. I had contacted the local Seventh-day Adventist church, both in Arusha and Moshi, and the people on the other end of the telephone did not speak English, and I did not speak Swahili. I had finally decided I've got to get in touch with the conference, and so I had sent a telegram to the conference, but had not heard back from them. I was a deeply troubled, deeply questioning young man and no one was there to advise me to get into plastics. The question that kept running through my mind is, what is God thinking? What is God's plan for me? What is going on? Is it possible for us to know the mind of God? The short series we're having this week and next week is entitled The Mind of God, and it is looking at today, can we know the mind of God? What was God thinking throughout creation, through the fall of, of our parents, Adam and Eve, through the war that we hear about in, in heaven? What was God doing? What was in his mind? Next week, I want to talk about thinking God's thoughts after him. What were God's best friends thinking as they related to God? What can we think as we relate to God? How can our relationship with God be informed by understanding the mind of God? I discovered that there is actually a Greek word or a made-up word for this whole question about what is God thinking? It's actually called theodicy, and it means judging God, trying to figure out if there is a God who is omnipotent and omniscient, and he loves us, why is there so much evil in this universe? Most of the answers, there's three main answers to that question. One of those is, if there is this much evil in the universe, God must not be as powerful as we think he is. He's good, but he's not powerful enough to control evil. Another way of looking at it is just the flip side of that, and that is God is all-powerful, but if there's this much evil in the universe, this much sadness, sickness, pain, and suffering, he must not be that good. The third answer is sort of a compromise, and that is the bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that's all there is to it. It's not ours to question why. It's not ours to try to figure out if God says he's good and God says he's powerful, it's not up to us to try to figure out why there's all this evil in the world. Those are the questions that have come out of this whole idea of judging God. So how do we get to know the mind of God? Well, first, we have to know what a mind is. It's interesting that we have learned a lot about the human brain. 
The human brain is, and I'll give you some big numbers here, it's made up of about 86 billion neurons, which are the cells in the brain. Each of them have about 10,000 connections with other cells. So we have almost a quadrillion linkages in our brains. This is how we think. This is where our brains are active. Now, we've been told ever since I was a child, I've been told we only use 10% of our brains. Actually, functional magnetic resonance imaging has shown that we really do use most of our brains. What this entity does is it studies the way blood moves through the brain by looking at the different magnetic function of blood when it has oxygen and blood when it doesn't have oxygen. And almost in real time, you can watch and see what a person's brain is doing while they are thinking. And you can show them pictures. You can show them pictures that make them happy, like pictures of family or of pleasant places. You can show them pictures that make them sad. Or you can show them just random pictures of houses. And you can see on this functional MRI where the blood is moving in the brain as they view these various things or as they are thinking these various thoughts. So we've learned a lot about that, and yet we still don't know what the human mind is. We've given it a, a lot of functions. We say that that is where we have our consciousness, that we have the ability to understand where we are. It's the part of our brain that has perception that has our reasoning and our thinking ability, the judgment of how we, how we view things. It's where we have our memories and our recognition, where our imagination and creativity comes from. It's what controls our emotions and our feelings. It's what gives us personhood. It's what gives us character. It's what makes you, you. And yet we don't know exactly what it is. There's two main ways of viewing it. One is that it's sort of outside of the brain itself. It's somehow a combination of everything the brain does plus the rest of our bodies. Some people confuse it with what they call the spirit and say it's sort of out there. Another way of viewing it is that it really is the brain. The brain is our mind. We just don't quite yet know how it does all the things that it does because neurons are just made out of atoms, which are just made out of quarks, and it seems wrong to have such a, a powerful thing as our mind to just be based in something that is so, so touchable, so tangible, so, so uh, uninformed. We're told also that we have the image of God within us. If we look at <clears throat> Education, the book by Ellen G. White, Education on page 17, this is what she says. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator. Individuality power to think and to do. It is the work of education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. So in large part, when God said, let us make man in our image, 
The image of God was the mind that he gave us. It was this individuality, this personhood, this consciousness, the ability to think and to do, to have judgment and to reason. This is the image that God has put into us. So how do we get to know somebody else's mind? It's hard enough to know our own mind. How do we get to know somebody else's mind? The whole idea of paying a penny for your thoughts is really undervaluing the idea of mind. And to get to know somebody else's mind, really, we are limited by them having to reveal it to us. Husbands and wives seem to have a different ability to read each other's minds. It seems that women are better than men. And yet, I have told my wife many times, I cannot know what you're thinking until you tell me what you're thinking. She often knows what I'm thinking without me telling it, but we have to reveal it. They're better, she's better at picking up on those cues than I am. But there has to be something, something I have to share with you. I have to tell you, either in verbal or written or miming or doing something, to let you know what I'm thinking, to share with you what's in my mind. So how do we as human beings get to know the mind of God? Or is that even possible? Is it impious for us to think that we can get to know the mind of God? There are a couple verses in the Bible that seem to lead in that direction. Ecclesiastes 8 and Romans 11 say God's ways are inscrutable. No man can understand God. And yet Romans 1 says that everyone has known God. Everyone has had a glimpse of God. God has revealed himself to everyone and there is no excuse for them not having some understanding of God. But for us to understand the mind of God, it has to be what has he revealed to us. Even more than in working with human beings, we could not know the mind of God, the thoughts of God, the ideas of God, unless he had revealed them to us. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we're told that God has revealed himself to us. This is in your Bible in front of you, and you are free to write in those Bibles or to take them with you. They are yours if you would like. But on page 1102, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we're told that God long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the earth. So God has told us what he wants us to know about him through the prophets, through the Bible, through his son, which we also learn about through the Bible. So the Bible, in many ways, is the mind of God for us. I had been in the new Arusha Hotel for about a week when I finally got a telegram from the conference. Essentially, all it said was, get out of that hotel. <laughs> they advised that I move across the street to a much cheaper hotel 
and that they would be sending someone along to pick me up and to help me out. They had thought I was coming later than I had come. It was a relief, even though I had to move out of that luxurious misery that I had in that hotel. It was a relief to at least know somebody knows where I am, somebody's coming to get me, and there is some communication between me and the conference. However, I still had no communication from home. Now, some of you, when you think of 1974, probably think that we had sailing ships and steam locomotives and horses and carriages. It wasn't quite like that, but we did not have smartphones, we did not have texting, we did not have tweeting. Mark Zuckerberg was just, Zuckerberg was just a gleam in his father's eye. Pastor Jayfoot was still wearing diapers. <laughs> and to communicate with somebody at home, you had to either use a very expensive thing called a telephone, a landline, or you wrote letters. And I expected, I had had, as I mentioned, several people who had promised they would write letters to me. Um, my parents, of course, and several other friends, and uh, some of the young ladies that I had wondered about. But I got no letters. And it finally dawned on me, after I had been in Tanzania for about a month, I don't have an address. So I went to the local post office, the Moshi post office, and I said, do you have a section for general delivery where people just send letters and you don't know where their address is? And do you happen to have any letters for Mark Johnson? And the gentleman behind the screen said, we've been wondering who you were. We have a box full of letters for you. And I got that box of letters. I will never forget the day. I walked out of the post office. I went to a park near there. I sat down and I began reading those letters. Letters from my parents, letters from some friends. But the majority of those letters had pictures drawn on them, pictures of giraffes and of monkeys and of lions and of the Serengeti and of beautiful things in, in Colorado and in Tanzania. Almost a hundred of those letters were from Diane Brawyer, a friend that I had had, that we had dated some. We had broken up so that she could date while I was gone. I didn't think it was fair for me to hold on to her while I was gone. And as we went through that year, almost every day, I got a letter from Diane Brawlier. <clears throat> I lived with a host family, and, and the host family matriarch, Marilyn Lawrenson, after a couple months said, I don't know why you're wasting your time on all these other girls. Diane is the one that truly loves you. We get to know each other by communicating, by sending letters, by talking, by sharing. Adventists 
have a very unique and breathtaking understanding of the communicating that has gone on in this universe. Some other denominations are amazed at the scope, how we believe we understand what happened before creation, all the way through the millennium after the destruction of the world, because we believe this has been revealed to us. We believe it's biblical. We also believe that we have had additional revelation that has helped to explain some of the things that were going on in the universe, some of the things that were going on in the mind of God as all of these things were taking place. It's almost like Star Wars is the great controversy. And I, I fear that our children, my children and perhaps your children, don't value our understanding of the great controversy because it has been diluted by pictures in Star Wars and Star Trek and some of these things, it's almost like, oh, we've heard that before, that's just fables. I would remind you, however, which one came first? That the stories we have from the Bible, the stories we have from Ellen G. White talking about what was going on in the universe, what was God thinking, what was happening, came way before Star Wars. It's important to remember also that there was peace in the universe before we had evil in the universe. Before the entrance of evil, and this I am now reading from The Great Controversy, page 493. Before the entrance of evil, there was peace and joy throughout the universe. All was in perfect harmony with the Creator's will. The law of love, being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depended upon their per perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. God desires from all His creatures the service of love homage that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in a forced allegiance, and to all he grants freedom of will, that they may render him voluntary service. This peace that was in the universe is also what God wants to bring back to the universe, and it's based on several things, a law of love. Last week, Pastor Jessica talked about love, and in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a great description of what love is. If all of us loved like that, there would be no evil in this world or in this universe. That's the law that God uses to run the universe. He wants to bring us back to that. He also created us with intelligence, and with freedom of choice. And he will not force us to do his will. He leaves that up to our voluntary allegiance. I thought at this point of doing something, of having all of you try to think like God thinks. But I thought that might be blasphemous, and it would be very difficult for some of you. I then thought perhaps I should have you all 
think like Lucifer thought. But I thought perhaps the best thing to do is to have you all think, try to think like you are an angel in heaven before sin entered the universe. Now that may be difficult again for some of you, but I didn't say which side you had to choose. You could be a bad angel or a good angel. But there are things going on in the universe. There are things going on in heaven that are exciting, troubling, and worrisome. Some of your friends have been meeting together with Lucifer, the leader of the angels under Christ. And he has been bringing new thoughts to their minds. Thoughts such as, is God really running the government of the universe in the best possible way? Are his methods really the best? He also raised questions about what does God really want from us? Are we really free or are we slaves to God? What are God's motives for the way he runs the universe? Now, we're told that Lucifer and Christ had been covering angels in the very throne room of God and that Lucifer began to wish that he could be elevated to the same level as Christ. The main difference was that Christ was called into the councils of God and we're told that this happened because Christ and God are equal. They are both God and that they made plans together, that Lucifer had nothing to add. He was not God. He was a creature. But he began to want to be in the room. He wanted to have that access, to have that power, to have that, that glorification that came with that. And he began to think envious thoughts about Christ. And that tells us a couple things. It tells us one thing is that Christ who had taken on the form of an angel to be the leader of the angels, was so much an angel to them that he didn't lord it over them, or Lucifer would have never thought he could be his equal. We see that again when Christ came to this world. Christ became so much a human being that nobody thought he was God. Very few people thought he was God. They thought he was just another poor human being. He became so much a human that humans thought, I can be just like that. There's nothing special here. But God, as he began to understand, as he knew that Lucifer was having these thoughts, he did something that he does throughout the Bible. He called the angels together for a conference. And he reminded them that Christ was equal to God the Father. Now, for most of the angels, this was, no, this was, this was wonderful. They loved Christ. They loved to, do, to bid, do his bidding. They loved to follow him. It was not an issue. But to Lucifer, this grated on his pride that he had to bow with the rest of the angels and acknowledge Christ as his leader tore at his pride and increased his envy. 
And as he then began to wander through, talking to the angels, he began to tell them, we now have a new ruler over us. Christ is now enslaving us. They're taking away our freedom. There's a new law that we have to obey. We are perfect. We don't need laws. We've always been doing the right things. Why did God have to put Christ over us? Also, I am equal with him. I'm a covering angel just like he is. Why is God withholding from me the power and the glory that I should have and to be equal with Christ? And then we're told in Revelation 12 that this finally got to the point that there was war in heaven. That Michael and his angels and Lucifer or Satan now, the accuser of the brethren and his angels, had war in heaven. Now, I don't know what war in heaven looks like. I have a feeling it mainly is a war of the minds because I don't think they could kill each other. I don't think they could hurt each other physically. But we don't know what that war was like. What we do know is the outcome of that war is that Lucifer and his followers were thrown out of heaven. Why didn't God... And remember, you're thinking as angels now. Why didn't God just destroy Lucifer and the angels? Good government, good leadership would require that, wouldn't it? Just get rid of them. Instead, he put them down on this earth, and they have continued to cause problems since that time. What was he thinking? Instead of destroying Lucifer and his angels, what was he thinking? What was in the mind of God? The angels were ready for that. They were ready to get rid of him. I'll have a quote a little bit later that talks about how they didn't understand yet what was going on. But in the mind of God, he knew that if he was going to have true freedom in the universe, if he was going to have true voluntary allegiance, Questions had been raised by Lucifer that needed to be answered. And destroying Lucifer and his angels would not answer those questions. Questions about his methods and his motives, the way he governed and why. Those questions were now out there. They needed to be answered. If he had destroyed Lucifer and his angels at this point, even though the other angels had stayed true to him, there would still be questions in their mind. Was Lucifer telling the truth? Is God really enslaving us? Does God really have our best interests in mind? And eventually we're told those would have broken out again in bitterness and complaining and sin would have broken out again. God had to let this play its course so that the whole universe would see where sin leads. God then moved <clears throat> by doing something that is almost unthinkable. Again, it is breathtaking. God took his case into court. If you look at Romans 3, 4, which is on page 1041 of your Bibles in front of you, I'm going to read from a different translation from Goodspeed, but here's what it says. 
As the scripture says that you, and it's speaking about God, that you may be shown to be right in what you say and win your case when you go into court. Why would an omnipotent, omniscient God take his case to court? And who are the judges in this court case? Again, it's us as human beings and us in our role as angels. We are viewing what God has done. We are looking at what he has done. We're taking the arguments of Satan, taking the arguments of, of God, and we are judging. God runs an open government. We have talked in our church about the investigative judgment, and that has caused a lot of people a lot of heartburn. But I see it just as what God has done all through the Bible, where he is conferencing with all of his creatures and saying, here are some issues we need to discuss. We're told that before Satan and his angels were thrown out, all of them individually were looked at, were diagnosed, and were judged as to whether they were loyal or not. And then those who are not loyal were put out of heaven. In Daniel 7, it talks about them all getting together to discuss the issues of the universe. In the first two chapters of Job, we see them all getting together and discussing the issues in the universe. And Job comes up, and there's battle back and forth between God and Satan over, over Job. At the end, everybody gets together, and once again, every case is looked at, so that there are no questions that when God says, this person is going to be in my kingdom forever, everybody understands what the issues are and that it is true that this person is worthy of being there. There's going to be a lot of questions about some of us. There will be questions about people like the thief on the cross. Could he really be saved? That's what God's court is all about, to look at those questions, to understand what's going on, so that he may be shown to be right in what he does. Then God did something again that was breathtaking to the universe. He moved forward with this war going on in the universe, with Satan and his angels still here in the universe. He moved forward with the creation of a new world. In the creation itself, he answered some of the questions that had been raised by Satan. He created a beautiful place, showing the love that he has for us and his creatures. But he also had to put some limits because he had to be fair to Satan. To let Satan truly tell his side of the story, he had to have an opportunity of tempting Adam and Eve and trying to tell his side of what he thought was going on in the universe. And so in the garden, he put a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This was the only place where Satan could tempt him, but he could tempt them there. He also warned Adam and Eve to stay away from that tree. And he sent his angels to tell them to stay away from that tree. And he gave them every reason to believe and to trust why they should follow what God said. He also created man and woman. As far as we know, this is unique in the, in the universe. And as we look at all of the problems that have come from having men and women we might question, what was he thinking? And yet, he is sharing with his creatures 
the godlike ability to create in our own image, to have love in our own families, to have relationships, to become one with each other like he wants to become one with us, like the Godhead is one. And it's true that Satan has totally disrupted the beauty that should come from this. But God was sharing, was sharing his creative power, answering one of the questions Satan had said was, God won't share his creative power. And God said, yes, I will. We then look at the arguments that Satan and God had with each other. And there, I have four of them from each side for you here. Lucifer said in the Garden of Eden, you can't trust God. God has said that if you sin, you will die. If you eat of this fruit, you will die. You won't. God just is trying to keep something good from you. He also told us in Job 1 and 2, where Satan was coming to this conference of the universe, and God holds up Job and says, have you seen my perfect servant Job? Satan says, he's not perfect. He's following you because of all the blessings you give him. You can't read the character of your creatures. You don't understand that he's just doing this because of all of the gifts and blessings you've given him. If you take those away from him, he'll curse you to your face and will never be your follower. In Isaiah 14 and 28, he once again says, you can't trust God. God has limited me. I should be like God. I should be on the Most High. I have the capabilities. I have the, the reasoning, the intelligence to be like God, and he won't let me do it. You can't trust God. In Zechariah, he also says, in the picture of Joshua the high priest, in the, the judgment of what is going on with Joshua, he says, you can't trust God because God is trying to save someone who is obviously a terrible sinner. God is trying to bring someone into the universe, into your universe, where you angels are living, who is untrustworthy. You can't trust God. He doesn't know how to read characters. God also had some things he was saying about the devil. If you look in Matthew 4, uh, if you look in uh, John 8, he says, you can't trust Satan. Satan is a murderer and a liar. He was the father of lies from the beginning. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, you can't trust Satan. He's a deceiver. He comes as an angel of light, but he is a deceiver. In Jude 6, he says, you can't trust Satan. He refused his place in heaven and wanted to be exalted above the throne of God. And in Revelation 12, he says, you can't trust Satan. He led a war against Michael and God. Ellen G. White also expands on some of those claims, uh, as does the Bible in Exodus 33, when Moses said, can I see your glory? God said, I'll put you in this cleft in the rock and I'll let you see the back of me. And as he went by, he said, this is my glory. I am merciful. I am gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Ellen White tells us that 
Satan paints the opposite picture. He says God's character is arbitrary. It's vindictive. It's exacting. It's severe. It's unforgiving. He's not the kind of God he claims to be. God claims that sin leads to death. Satan says, no, it doesn't. And if it does, it's just because God kills you. We are angels now. We're looking at this argument between God and Satan, and we are trying to make up our decision. When I finally returned from Tanzania, I had made up my mind that I was going to take medicine. I had made up my mind that I was going to be a Seventh-day Adventist, and I was going to do my best to stay true to God. And I had made up my mind that I wanted to marry Diane Brawlier. The first thing I did was I surprised her. I came home a little early because school was out over there. They're on a different schedule. I came home a little early, and I surprised her at the airport in San Francisco as she was flying back from Colorado to go back to PUC. I surprised her in the airport. I missed her coming off the plane. I don't know how I did that but I surprised her in the baggage claim area and I twisted her around and I hugged her and I gave her a kiss. She was overwhelmed. She was excited to see me. She was very excited to see me. I learned later that she thought I was another person (laughs) who had met her at the airport. But over the next couple months, we spent more and more time together, and eventually, I asked her to marry me, and eventually, she said yes. God had been thinking good thoughts for me during my whole time in Tanzania, and it had worked out for the best, at least in my life at that time. So what was God thinking for the universe? We're told that not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. The arch-apostate had so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. Desire of Ages, page 764. That means that even after they had watched the creation of the earth, they had watched God working with his people, They had watched the flood. They had watched the the movement of his people out of Egypt to the promised land. Even after all of that, they still had questions as to who was telling the truth in the great controversy. Had God moved too quickly, those questions would have broken out in sin at a later time. So the questions still are out there in the universe. Why does God, an all-loving, all-powerful God, allow evil in the universe? Why does God not destroy sinners? Can God be trusted? Is he telling us the truth when he tells us that sin leads to death? Is he telling us the truth when he says that sinners are not safe to have in heaven? Why does it matter to us if we obey 
from fear instead of from love, just as long as we obey? Those are the questions we're going to talk about next week as we move forward and look at God's working with his friends, as God working with his son, as we try to once again think God's thoughts after him. I want to finish with a quotation or finish this part with a quotation again from Ellen G. White. She's talking about the period that appears to be right around the book of Judges. And if you've read the book of Judges with the story of, of how the children of Israel were kept falling, kept coming back and forth. The book of Judges ends by saying, every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king to help control them. And at this time, angels in heaven also had certain thoughts. A crisis arrived in the government of God. All heaven was prepared at the word of God to move to help his elect. One word from him and the bolts of heaven would have fallen upon the earth, filling it with fire and flame. God had but to speak and there would have been thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and destruction. The heavenly intelligences were prepared for a fearful manifestation of almighty power. The exercise of justice was expected. The angels looked for God to punish the inhabitants of the earth. The heavenly universe was amazed at God's patience and love. To save fallen humanity, the Son of God took humanity upon himself. That's from Review and Herald, July 17, 1900 that even after all of that, the angels still did not have their questions answered. We'll find out next week that their questions weren't really answered until the cross, that there were still questions that needed to be answered. The mind of God was not yet fully revealed to them. And next week, hopefully, we can move into finding out not only what does he do with his friends, but how do we become his friends. I want to finish on a different note that has to do with what's going on in the world today. My job is very politically involved. I also was a political science major when I finally ended my college career. It was one of my majors. So I'm very interested in politics. Politics plays a role in everything I do in my day-to-day -day job. And I have been interested in many of the councils that I have had with politicians from all parties. And I don't want to hurt your feelings or shatter any of your myths, but politicians don't have the answers for what's going on in this world today. Any party, and they are the first to admit it, at least the ones I work with. We are warned to be careful how involved we get in, in politics. The older I get, the wiser I have found that advice to be. 
Troy Beans, the one who used to teach government class up at Campion Academy, used to invite me to come in and talk to the students, the senior students, about politics and about working in government. And I told them something that I think is very important and that I still truly believe. And that is, be very careful before you say, I am a Republican. I am a Democrat. I am a socialist. The human mind is made up such that our thoughts are reflected in our words, but also our words reflect upon our thoughts. And once you say, I am a Seventh-day Adventist, or I am a member of this party, you will then begin to marshal all of the evidence you can to support what you have said, to support the decision that you have made. And if you carry that too far, which oftentimes happens, you begin to try to support whatever church, whatever party, whatever entity you have joined and you have claimed allegiance to, even when you know in your heart there are problems with that church, with that party, with that organization. We right now live in a very divided country. We right now live in a very divided church. It is important for us to make sure that our allegiance is not to a party, is not to a church, but is to a picture of God. That we are allied with the picture of God that Christ paid so much to bring to the universe. And we are told that the world will know us because we love each other so much. And if we allow divisions in the church, divisions in politics, divisions in organizations to drive wedges between us and other members of our church, we are not representing God to the world. It is very important for us to have the unity that Christ wants in his church. And so I'd like to close today by singing a song that many of you have never heard. We actually did this once at Pacific Union College when we were having some unity problems. It's a song that's found in the old church hymnal. And hopefully the words will be up in front of you as Kathy so kindly plays for us. The song, Blessed be the tie, the, the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Please join with me as we sing.
Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other there flows a sympathizing God, our Father, Father of us all, be with us today, be with our church, be with our country, be with us as individuals. Help us to spend our time getting to know you better, drawing closer to you, learning to reflect your character more to those around us so that the love that you have for us and for our fellow beings is something that draws others because it is so unusual to see in this world. Help us, Lord, as we move forward this week. Give us the wisdom and the guidance that we need. Help us to use the freedom that we have in this country, the freedom that you have given to us as free moral agents to the best of our ability to be revelations of you to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.